Father, in our journey to be like you, we discover so many shortfalls, so many dangers. You are our all-sustaining God, and there is nowhere else that we can go. Because you alone have the words of eternal life. For we cannot live by bread alone, but we need every word that comes from your mouth. So fill us, feed us, for all scripture is breathed out by you for our benefit. So teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work done to your glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So there are eight cracks in the heart as fallen beings. We are not whole. We are broken. And these eight cracks have been identified through church history as the eight sinful passions, or later reduced to the seven deadly sins. Um, they They are gluttony, lust, greed, anger, Apathy, despondency, self-esteem, and pride. Now, James warns us like this, that sin works very uh, deceptively and deadly. James in chapter 1 verse 14 says this, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James there shows us the three-step process to death. You want to live your worst life now? Do this. One, let every thought that comes to you, for thoughts themselves are not sin until we give our consent to them. So let every thought that comes to you be something you give your consent to. Once the thought comes to me and I fantasize about it, I've now given myself to the passions. Or once a thought comes and I enact upon it, I give my consent to it and do what it says, I have given myself to the passions. It starts with a thought. We must learn to watch these eight thoughts, lest we give our consent to them. The passions are, in other words, eight crowbars that the devil uses to wedge the cracks of our heart open wider so that he can come in and have his way instead of Christ having his way in us. So what happens is the thoughts come, they try to pry open, but they cannot get into us unless we give our consent. That's what James said. When it has conceived, when we say yes to the thought, then it gives birth to sin. And this sin grows and grows and becomes strong. And and it becomes so strong, you cannot master it. It masters you. And that's when you're dead. Theological death is when I cannot live the life God has given to me, and I am mastered by the devil, by the demons, by the passions and the sins of my flesh. That's death. You want to live hell on earth? You simply give yourself to the passions. We allow the devil to keep wedging the cracks of our heart open and exploiting us. We become puppets. We are passive. We are without self-control. We are without self-direction. You become the passions themselves. Your second nature is gluttony or it's anger or it's pride. You no longer have to process. You react in these sins. That's when you are no longer being made in the nature of God, but you are being made in the nature of the demonic passions. So 
Um, passions are used to thinking as something that we have. I have a passion for baseball. I have a passion for God. But in reality, at least in the older days, passion meant something that has you. If you have the passion of anger, anger possesses you. And that's a scary thought. So we are going to remember, as I'm reminding you each week, because when we look at these things, we can feel really down on ourselves. We can feel really convicted. The goal is not to make us feel like losers. The resurrection of Christ, which we will be celebrating in five weeks, is about the fact that he's raised us up into dignity with him. We don't have to feel like complete losers. We get to receive his mercy because he wants to heal us. That's the good news. We're looking at the eight cracks to say, Father, patch these up. But tonight, we're seeking his mercy. So let's look at the passion of anger together, shall we? Okay. Here's my definition of anger. Anger is impatience. Anger is impatience aroused by an interference of our wishes. Anger is impatience aroused when my wishes are interfered with. To put that another way. Impatience. Uh, It's been called the avenger of desire. Anger is the avenger of desire. I was surprised by this because most of my life I always considered myself not angry at all. I don't have an angry bone in my body. People generally, my students in the past have generally considered me uh, and other people you guys too, uh, a peaceful person who exudes peace. I'm like, I don't have anger. This is that one that owns me. But that's when I limited anger to something that was an outburst, something that you expressed, sometimes violently. But anger is not just an outburst. Anger is also an inner burning. And it can seethe and it can come out sideways and it can come out in sarcasm and passive aggressiveness and irritableness. Because patience, excuse me, because anger is impatience. When you have a desire or a wish that's thwarted, I, I want to do this, and then someone or something thwarts that, anger is our response if we don't choose to respond in patience. So what we usually do is we end up responding in impatience. I mean, think of this in a very classic sense. You're on the freeway, the 91. Why would you ever think you're going to go straight through the 91? I don't know. But maybe you thought you were going to get straight home really fast. And then, oh, you're thwarted from your desire because there's traffic. And you feel the impatience rising up in you. That is anger. Now, you put this in another sense, um, it's, it's, it's not ironic, and it's not an accident that anger follows the prior three passions. They were passions of desire, gluttony, lust, and greed. These are things that we want, and so anger happens when these things are thwarted. So it's an impatience aroused when our wishes are interfered with. Um, anger, thus, um, is also a remembrance of wrongs. You tend to like nurse wounds and injuries. And so it tends to make us very irritable um, because you tend to expect offenses to happen to you. You're very sensitive to things and you kind of take things the wrong way all the time. Anger can set us into this permanent everyone's against me posture. All right. There are three expressions of anger. Uh, They are wrath. They are resentment and they are vindictiveness. 
Wrath is when anger is put on the move. Okay, so remember, the passion start as a thought. I'm thwarted from what I wanted. My desire is frustrated. And so the thought comes, well, respond the way you should. Someone took your right. That's the thought. Now, do I give my consent to that? Why not? When I do, then it produces wrath. And wrath is when anger is now on the move. Anger is now entered. And it's either going to be that inner wrath or that outer wrath. Some people show this violently or with their voice. Some people show it or don't show it. They kind of more hold it in and they hold that grudge and that bitterness against you. That's wrath. The next is resentment. And this is what happens when we neglect the fact that wrath is happening to us. Resentment is when you just kind of bottle it up in the heart and like, oh, I, I'm not going to ever show this or I'm not going to ever deal with it. I mean, it's not there. But then it sort of breeds and festers. That's resentment. So wrath is anger on the move, but resentment is anger rooted in the heart. And then vindictiveness, that is anger on the watch. This is the ultimate and worst expression. If all of this is undealt with, then eventually you are going to be looking, watching for ways to vent your anger, especially at a person or a thing. That's vindictiveness. Now, before we move forward, um, we want to clear the air very quickly here that not all anger is wrong and not all anger is sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger. But what the demons want us to do is to use the anger for our self-justification to get our ways and our desires. But anger is actually given to us as a means of battling against evil, injustice, and the demons. That's what anger is for. We see Jesus expressing anger rather shockingly in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 1, toward the end, there was a, there was a leper, and it says that he... Oh, what does it say? It's a terrible translation. It says something like he groaned, but actually the Greek is referring to the neighing of a war horse. That's what he did. It was an anger expression. It was a ready to do battle against something you hated. Jesus hated to see the effects of sin on the human life. He doesn't hate us or is angry at us for sin. He's angry at sin for what it does to us. That's why God moves swiftly and carefully against sin. Um, Mark chapter 3, you see the man with the withered hand who it was asked to stretch it out. But then the Pharisees were all watching to see, oh, is Jesus going to heal on the Sabbath? We're going to get him. And then it says that Jesus looked at them with anger. And of course, we know the day after Palm Sunday, Monday, <laughs> Monday after Palm Sunday, Jesus goes into the temple. And as the theologians call it, he has his temple tantrum. And throws over tables and tells people to get out. There was anger, but it was anger not to defend his own cause. It was anger to get rid of an evil hindering the glory and work of God. But no, let's please note that never does Jesus use anger in a, mean, in a way that is violent or hurts people. It's always aimed at demonic work, at the demons themselves, at Satan. Um, Jesus shows us appropriately how not to use anger on the cross. It's the ultimate example of the way he chooses not to show anger at his persecutors. In fact, he asks that God would forgive them. Quite the opposite. But just so that we see that, the anger exists in life. We don't have to necessarily diffuse all. We just have to understand how are we using anger and why does anger exist? It can never be because my desires were thwarted and I will therefore 
use my impatience to get what I want, or I'm going to hold this person against me because how dare they? And if you really dig a little deeper, this is a posture of pride that other people exist to serve me and my wants. This is when anger flares up, the sinful passion of anger. Okay, so anger is a problem. Anger hurts lives. Anger hurts you. But I want to look a little deeply here at what the Bible says about the problem of anger. And I want to share a couple of what our early Christian fathers and mothers have said about anger. Um, so we can see, like, how is the church handling anger within themselves? Um, let's look first at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. And hopefully this will now make sense, because I think in my youth I always was not sure how to do a verse like this. But Ephesians 4, verse 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. See, there it is. There is a, there is a thing as anger, but there's also a thing of anger that's righteous, but then there's an anger that is sinful. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you do find that you have anger towards someone, resolve it. Don't let the sun go down on it. Why? Because, uh, verse 27 says, give no opportunity to the devil. If I allow anger to become a passion that runs me, I am giving opportunity to the devil. If I am allowing some resentment I hold against a person to extend over time, I am giving opportunity and place to the devil. The early church was very serious about the passion of anger taking hold in the church because it gave place to the devil. Anger's primary problem is that it gives the devil a place. It gives him, I think the New King James has a foothold, right? Someone who's got it. It gives him that little plate where he's not completely cast out. Now, I don't know how many of you guys read or watched The Hunger Games. You know, it was a pretty big sensation among the young, young people some, what, a decade ago now? Are we that old? Okay, I think it was a decade ago. Um, I, I remember um, I read through those and I, I watched the films too. There's this really cool line. And if you don't understand the story, just at least hear the line. Um, there's a really cool line in which Katniss, the heroine, uh, her, her mentor reminds her before she has to go do battle against these people. See, the government's evil, and the government's making kids fight kids. Yeah, um, Pretty bad. Um, but it can be easy when you're thrust into the arena to think that the other kids are the enemy. So her mentor reminds her before she goes into the battle, Katniss, remember who the real enemy is. And there was this little cahoots in which they were actually going to um, overthrow the system by not fighting each other and working together. Katniss needed to realize that this was about to happen and not see each other as the enemy, but to work together against the real enemy. This is exactly what we as Christians and as a church must be about. We must not let anger give place to the devil. We must remember who the real enemy is. The enemy is not the person who took your parking spot tonight. I know, small beans. The enemy is not the person who slandered you or the person who continually offends you on purpose, gets under your skin, uses sarcasm, jokes about the things that you know you're, they know you're sensitive to. These, 
these things give place to the devil if we are angry at each other. They're not the real enemy. In fact, the demons are masters at deflection. They will throw darts at us and then they'll hide behind our brother and sister and giggle. And they will say, how dare you, John? And the whole time the demon's like, got him. He thought John did it. Now, the, now, we sometimes might become instruments of the demons to hurt each other, but we must remember when we're wounded or insulted that it is not the person to vent our anger toward. It is the work of darkness behind the person. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6? We're in Ephesians. You can just go over a little bit to chapter 6, verse 12. He told us this, 6 verse 12. You do not wrestle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against Amy and Chris and Brandon and 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 so forth. We don't wrestle against each other, but rather we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's Paul's long list of the different ranks of demonic powers. That's what we wrestle against. And we must keep that in mind. Remember who the real enemy is. John Chrysostom Put it like this, and talking about how the demons are masters of deflection. He said, when somebody abusively insults you, do not harbor resentment against him, but battle against the devil who is tempting him to do this. Vent your wrath on him, the devil. For if lying comes from the devil, then showing anger to no purpose is much more from that source, the devil. When you see someone making fun of you, Reflect that it is the devil who is tempting him. So anger gives place to the devil because he's, it creates division and animosity and we break unity. And the problem with this, giving place to the devil is a pretty big deal, but there's at least two problems that I, can quick, I could quickly come up with. I say quickly, you know, in hours of work and study, uh, I could come up with two very important reasons that this is a problem. First, anger, when the devil has his place, he will use anger to corrode your soul. Anger corrodes your soul. Augustine of Hippo described it as vinegar left in a jar. He said when vinegar is left in a jar too long, it corrodes the jar. Anger will corrode your soul. Evagrius the solitary had a witty one. He said the one who binds memory of injury to his soul... Remember how they hurt me? Yes, I don't like how they, they did that. I still can't believe they did that. You keep this memory to your soul. The one who binds the memory of injury to his soul is like one hiding fire in chaff. That's not going to end well. John of Sinai, who's always so quotable, says this. Remembrance of wrongs is the consummation of anger, the keeper of sins, hatred of righteousness, ruin of virtues, poison of the soul, worm of the mind, shame of prayer, cessation of supplication, estrangement of love, a nail stuck in the soul, pleasureless feeling cherished in the sweetness of bitterness, continuous sin, unsleeping transgression, and hourly malice. That's a quote you can read over and over and dwell on. That's just a couple of those. The worm of remembering wrongs and against you is a worm in the mind. That's gross. It's a nail in the soul. 
You want these things stuck to you? You want things corroding you and eating at you? Keep remembering the wrongs done to you. That's his advice. Anger corrodes us because anger anticipates offense. When I'm mad at someone, I'm expecting them to do things wrong. And I'm beginning to take everything they do with ultra sensitivity. When people are viewed like this around us, you know that anger has you and it's manipulating the way you see people and respond to people. Anger absorbs our attention on ourselves because we sit there and lick our wounds. And then we expect, basically, we have this this viewpoint of we're the wounded ones and everyone else is supposed to help me. And then we get angry at those who don't help us. So our anger gets propounded and our wounds start to fester. We get, in other words, a victim mentality. It's not surprising, therefore, that in a lot of alcoholic um, problems or addiction, I should say, addiction problems, um, anger is actually at the root of many of these things. You can't let go of some anger at someone, so you've gone to these things. Um, Anger makes our adversary, the one we're against, become part of our identity. Because if you're thinking about them all the time and you're always thinking about how you're going to maneuver around them or, or, or there are always this presence of how they've wronged you, you're wearing the scars from them all the time, wearing your heart on your sleeve and bleeding it out, it's going to become part of your identity. And the problem with that is your identity is therefore going to be defined by what or who you are against. And with great hurt, we saw this happen to the church over the last two years of COVID. We have seen, I guess I should say, so much of Christendom has been defined by what or who they're against over the last two years. It was a problem before that, but it's got worse over COVID. Yep, that was a problem here too for a time. I don't think anybody liked that I wasn't on board with them, so they left. (laughs) Um. I I say this because I want you to know I'm proud of you. I see in you guys a people who are not defined by what you're against. I see people who are defined by a desire for union with Christ, a desire for a deeper life with him, a desire to unroot the things that are displeasing to him. And when I see the prayer cards that are sent in, this is the consistent theme people are asking for prayer for. I'm not seeing any more prayers about you know, um, things that they're hearing on Fox News or CNN. That does drive a lot of Christian conversation, a lot of the angst. But I believe that you have allowed the Spirit to heal you. You've allowed, through our times of prayer together and our deep dives into Scripture, you've allowed a healing process in which we're willing to not be defined by what we're against. Our identity is not our adversary. Our identity is our advocate Christ the intercessor. And I'm proud to be leading you guys who are of that sort. The others I'm going to be proud of because you will heal too. And I'm not looking at anyone. Um, Yeah, so one of the problems with anger is that it corrodes the soul. That's what it does to us. But then it severs, second, anger severs our spiritual power. Anger gives place to the devil because anger severs us from our spiritual power. And this is a very apparent theme in our early Christian writers. Not only does Paul mention it here in Ephesians, but it is all over in our earliest writers. Did you know, by the way, 
Um, well, now he's, let's get into this here. Uh, evagor, uh, or they, they, I'm stumbling all over myself. Watch me fall. Um, <laughs> the early Christians believed that anger produced powerlessness in prayer. Anger produced powerlessness in prayer. You cannot pray to God and be angry at your brother. It was impossible in their view. Now, their view, uh, here, here's an example. Evagrius, the solitary again, he said, the man who stores up injuries and resentments and yet fancies that he prays might as well draw water from a, from a spring and pour it into a cask that is full of holes. See, if anger is corroding the soul, then my prayers to God, all, all of this is going to just fall out of the holes. That's what he's saying. Your prayers are just going to go through the holes that you're pouring it into. Um, because anger cuts us off from our spiritual power. There's no connection in our prayers to God when we are holding resentment against each other. That's what he was teaching. Um, in fact, the uh, Cyprian of Carthage, he was in the 200s. Um, so this is, this is not very far from the apost- living memory of the apostles. Um, he actually referred to Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus' law of prayer. You know what Matthew 5 is? You know it. Matthew 5, 23. Jesus said, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What is he saying? If you came tonight, and you have anger in your heart, the most important thing to do is go reconcile yourself, because everything you're doing here means absolutely nothing. You've given place to the devil in your heart. And what's worse is you've given place to the devil within our community. This was Jesus' law of prayer according to Cyprian of Carthage. So the early Christians actually set up. If you come to worship angry, you cannot offer prayer until you've been reconciled. Here's how Cyprian himself put it. God does not accept the sacrifice of one who is in dispute and sends him back from the altar, ordering him first to be reconciled to his brother so that he may pacify God by praying as a peacemaker. The greater sacrifice to God is our peace and brotherly agreement as people unified in the unity of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If God is three in one, we must be a people who are many in one, or we are not praying to the same God. That's what he's saying. Paul alludes to this too when he talks about unworthy communion. I, um, I remember growing up always being in agony of when, when you're holding the bread and the cup, like, am I unworthy? And um, what Paul says in the context of 1 Corinthians 11 is very clear. Taking communion in an unworthy manner is taking communion while in division with one another or while being angry at someone else. He says, for example, these are three verses from 1 Corinthians 11. He says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Uh Uh-oh. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Because of your divisions, you're just eating food. The Lord's Supper is only when we're unified. And then he concludes, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. When you guys come to receive the bread and the cup, communion is oneness with God. It's oneness with Christ. This is what we're entering to. We're participating in union. That's what communion is. How can we be unified in Christ, with Christ, if we are not unified with each other who are parts of the body of Christ? It's nonsensical. And that's what Paul is saying is you are doing it in an unworthy manner. To put this all in a nice little bow, the early church teaches that there is no worship with anger in our hearts. There is no worship if we're holding resentment or bitterness. There's no worship if we owe someone an apology. Worship can only happen when we are unified and at peace with each other. So, um, I was enthralled to read this book one day that my brother over here read as well, um, in which I was introduced to the concept that the early church had something called the kiss of peace. You see this at the end of letters. Paul would say, greet one another with a holy kiss. This is the actual practice of the Christians. After the sermon, they would pray together, much like we actually do. And then after their prayers, to show that their prayers were offered in unity, they would exchange a kiss of peace. Now, there's reasons we don't do that today. And actually, some of the bishops back then had to write to churches about the kissings getting a little loud or it's taking a little long, um, they actually need to, you know, you can imagine there need to be some guidelines with that. Um, but the beautiful practice was that the church would show one another through this ritual that we are not in resentment against one another. And this was the moment where if you were, you had to reconcile. This was the trigger to reconcile because the next step after the prayers and the kiss of peace was the receiving of the bread and the cup. This is an actual practice that you can read about from documents of the early church writers. When we are in prayer and you realize that there is something in your heart that needs to be settled, why wait? Go and reconcile with your brother and sister. For the sake of your soul and for the sake of of your church. When we gather in a clump to come down the aisle and receive the bread and the cup, and you cannot with good faith give a hug and wish blessing upon each person in that aisle, you are not fit to receive the body and blood of Christ. Until you do. Let him cure the anger in our hearts. And this would be a good trigger when we get up and we mingle back here to receive communion. Why not then ensure that everyone is? And if you need an apology to Tyler or just ask Tyler, forgive me a sinner. Sinner Tyler. I make fun of him too much. So I, um, This is our moment. This is our trigger to make sure we are at peace because we do not want to give place to the devil. Ephesians continues in chapter 4 
just some um, visual. Paul continues to talk about anger. 429, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give peace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Anger and giving place to the devil grieves the Holy Spirit. And this severs us from our spiritual connection, which is why it's so important that we remain at peace and unity and reconciliation with each other. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So let all bitterness, these are all words for anger, by the way. These are like the offspring of anger right here. Remember how the passions, when they come into your heart, they give birth to all kinds of babies and you just have all kinds of more sins. Um, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And if we're going to hold the broken body and poured blood of Christ... And say, but I won't forgive. That's a very unworthy way of receiving Christ's forgiveness, right? Then chapter 5. Remember, chapter breaks sometimes ruin the flow. So go into a little bit in chapter 5 with me. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love. Here's your example. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's our example, brothers and sisters. So our power over anger. This is where I had a hard time because I could go down two roads here. We can talk about how to overcome anger. And it's hard. It's not a lot of easy ways. But I realized that maybe rather than emphasizing how to beat up a sin... Let's talk about how to bring the grace and virtue of Christ into our hearts that will overcome the sin. We just read from Luke, right, at the candle lighting. And Jesus said, did you catch how significant that was? Jesus said that when a demon's driven out from a person, and then he, will find, he won't find anywhere else to go, so he'll come back and find the home, the soul, clean and swept. He's like, oh, it's better than I left it. This is a great party house. So he goes and grabs seven other demons more vile than himself. Interesting number, isn't it? Eight demons, eight passions. And there they just have a party with you. Not really with you, but over you (laughs) at your expense. And here's what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching us that we cannot just say, I'm going to self-improve myself and get rid of the bad things of my life. That is an American approach. That is a human-centered approach. I will do this, and I'll get rid of the bad things. A Christian approach, Jesus says, is, okay, great, get rid of the bad things. But if you just get rid of the bad things, you're leaving yourself wide open. And someday, you're, if you don't actually conquer the passion, you're just like, ah, I'm just going to overcome this with you through self-will. You will lapse back into it. Eight times worse, seven, seven times worse than you were before. And some of you know this. I know this in my own life. I'm going to do this on my own. And oh, the fall is hard. What we need, therefore, is when God eradicates a passion from our hearts is to fill it with himself. Lest nothing worse be introduced. So 
we don't just aim at killing these passions. We aim at introducing virtues. Virtues are part of the nature and character of God. So what is the opposite of anger? What is the virtue of anger? Well, if anger is an impatience aroused because someone cut me off from my desires, I need patience. Patience, they say, is a virtue. Do you know why they say that, by the way? I'm throwing this out there. Uh, they say that because anger, uh, uh, um, patience actually wasn't a virtue. It was the Christians who made patience a virtue. Patience was not admired in the Roman Empire. By the way, patience is not admired in the American culture either. We want everything bigger, better, faster, newer. The Christians were unique in that they had a patient approach to life. They were patient with each other. They didn't get revenge against each other. They waited for reconciliation. They worked to these ends. They would take two steps back if that's what it took to all be together and unified. They were patient in their worship. They didn't ask, is this entertaining? Am I getting something out of this? They consistently gave themselves to the way scriptures taught them to worship, knowing that God has a process, trusting that he in time is going to make something of what they are doing with him and what he's doing with them. The Christians were unusually, I think it was one of the early writers called it strange patience, that people couldn't make sense of Christian patience. It was a foreign concept to the order of the day. We conquer anger through patience. Now, patience is a weird word. It's especially weird because what you'll notice, at least in the English Standard Version, my translation of the Bible, they actually translate the Greek word for patience as endurance. All the passages um, that once talked about patience are translated endurance. Because I think what happens is we tend to think of patience as a childish virtue. Oh, I can't wait two minutes for my chicken to be microwaved. I'm so impatient. And we're like, oh, that's so silly. Like, that's not the patience we're talking about. It's not like the Christians were exceptional at waiting for season tickets in line, you know, or getting the iPhone and standing out there all night. It's not like that kind of patience. The patience we're talking about is so much deeper. Here's what patience actually looks like. Patience is a willingness to suffer. It's a willingness to surrender our desires and to partner with God's will. A willingness to suffer. See, here's what happens. I get impatient and I get angry because someone has cut me off from my desire, which means I'm now suffering. I don't want to suffer, so I, I, I redirect the suffering onto the person. Patience starts with a willingness to suffer, to surrender our desires so that we can partner with God's will. What if this was cut off from me or interfered with because God had something else in mind for me? Anger, therefore, is my refusal of what he's trying to do in my life. So here's um, four pictures of patience so we can understand it better, of what we, I just said, like unpacking this. Patience, first, Christian patience absorbs and exhausts evil by its willingness to suffer. What? Patience absorbs and exhausts evil by its willingness to suffer. Think of the cross. 
Jesus did not deflect the evil back upon his persecutors. He absorbed it. How did he absorb it? He never returned it. And they exhausted the evil to the point that the devil's power was spent. That's why Jesus conquers death, the realm of the devil. It's why he makes a mockery of the devil through his resurrection is because he gave everything he had and Jesus simply absorbed it, exhausting the devil's power. And now he's rendered limp. This is what patience looks like. So when Jesus said, don't turn the other cheek, if they take your tunic, give to them the other and so forth. This is patience. And this is what the Christians were remarkably known for. Patience second is power. It's power. Patience is power. Invested over time. Whereas anger is power wasted in a moment. You've spent it all. But patience uses the same power, but spreads it out. It invests it over time. Third, patience is manifest by Jesus on the cross. Ultimate example of patience is Jesus on the cross. Willingly thwarting his desire for God's will and not returning evil for evil. That makes, therefore, if patience, of, if, patience is rooted in God's nature and it's been revealed in Christ on the cross. And if that's the case, then patience is uniquely Christian because our story is the only one that talks about receiving evil in this way. Every other narrative on the planet is revenge or get back or some story in which the hero has to do what he has to do to get his desire back. And actually, that's why as a culture, we love heroes and we know very little about saints because heroes use their resources to get what they wanted. The damsel in distress, I rescued her. Or newer stories are now letting ladies rescue the men or ladies do their, you know, it's not just, yeah, anyways. Uh, the hero gets what they want and we applaud their use of creativity, their cleverness, their forcefulness. That's a hero. But a saint, a saint's always on the fringes. A saint is always patient. A saint is waiting on God's timing, God's way. They're not forcing themselves. And so we're like, eh. Even as Christians, we get caught up in the heroes and not the saints. Patience is uniquely Christian. So, okay. So that I don't actually promise, make good on my promise of an hour and 25 minutes. Um, Let's talk about how to practice patience. How do we get there? It's hard. Practicing patience is hard because there is no quick way to get patience. Ironic, isn't it? Patience is hard to acquire because it takes time to produce patience. But I have some starting points for us. These are ways to start on the path toward patience. Number one, in review, remember the real enemy. Good way to start with patience. Don't get mad at Dan. Mad at the enemy. Remember the real enemy and bear with those God has placed in your life. Okay, I could so riff on this, but I don't want to. There's a problem in the church, at least in our context, America. People choose their churches by who goes to the church. Or they avoid the church they once went to because someone goes to that church. That is not patience. That is impatience, and that is selfish. Now, there might be other good reasons to, to choose a church, obviously. But because of the people? We're to remember who the real enemy is and bear with those God has put in our life. Why? Because God knows what I need to grow. I don't know what I need to grow. More people like me is a really bad formula 
to maintain and cement myself in who I am right now. But God puts that annoying person, that thorn in your side, that person who really makes you have to take a breath before you open your mouth. He puts these people in your life so that you will grow to become more like him. One of the biggest sins of the church today is that we do not receive each other as God's gifts in our lives. And we're quicker to say, well, that person does. Let me move on. This is a story over. I've been a pastor long enough to know that this is a story that is just so old in the church. So-and-so left because of so-and-so. You kidding me? (laughs) This isn't patience, brothers and sisters. We receive that person to help us. Um, There's a story of a monk (laughs) in the Egyptian wilderness who thought, "Uh, this community of monks is making me mad. I'm going to leave them so that I can overcome anger. So the story goes that he filled up his jar with water and he, he's, yeah, he's out in his no man's land. He fills his jar with water and he sets it down. The jar falls over and spills the water. Just somehow falls over. So he fills the drop with water again, sets it down. It somehow tips itself over and spills the water again. He did this a third time and guess what happened a third time? It tipped over. So he, in a rage, picked up the jar and smashed it on the ground yelling at it. And then he realized the irony of what just happened. And according to the story, he says this. Uh, He realizes that the demon of anger mocked him. And he said to himself, here I am by myself and he has beaten me. I will return to the community for wherever you live. You need effort and patience and above all, God's help. Uh, Recognize those problematic people as God's providence for your growth. Get to loving them. You will always be an angry, lonely, solitary monk yelling at water pots. Second way to practice patience is to choose suffering over enforcing your way. Choose suffering over enforcing your way. Um, Using force or manipulating outcomes is usually a sign that we've stopped waiting on God. I need this to happen. How can, I, how can I make this happen? Are you waiting on God anymore? Or are you trusting in your own plans? Um, I already talked about the fact that we tend to admire heroes because they force things, but not the people of God. Um, in fact, if you think about the stories of like Hercules versus Jesus, they are so opposite. Our story is the one of Christ carrying the cross, not of heroes yielding swords. Number three, worship God without hurry or haste. (laughs) This is important. Worship God without hurry or haste. I fear that many of us can give up on prayer, reading scripture, or going to church because we aren't getting anything out of it. Do you know how many times I hear that? I don't read the Bible because I don't get anything out of it. I don't pray because nothing happens. I don't... So you're saying that God didn't do things in your way and you weren't able to manipulate or force a situation, so you're going to quit. You're basically admitting that you are angry and given over to impatience. 
Patience is worshiping God without hurry or haste. And by the way, the overall church attendance in America is on the decline, and it has been for a long time. I believe firmly that this is because we are an impatient culture. We've stopped believing that something happens when we gather, whether we get anything out of it or not. That our prayers are affecting the community, whether we see it or not. That you are changing into the image of God week after week, whether it feels like anything happens week to week or not. Because the subtle forces of culture are shaping you and me every day with messages and with actions in which we're producing desires in our hearts. The church exists to worship God in a specific form so that it can worship, God can shape us into his way and his desires. We absolutely must give ourselves over to the patience of worship, trusting in God's processes. Uh, My brother shared this beautiful text this morning He sent me this picture of sourdough bread that he made, and it's gorgeous loaf. I was like, I was literally, I don't know, I I can't say gluttonizing because I couldn't eat the picture. So maybe that was lust. I was lusting after this loaf. It looked so good. And um, he, we were texting back and forth, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you actually have sourdough starter. You did the whole fermentation process. And he texts this, this is his words. He says, when you learn a bit about sourdough bread and the history of bread, It really is a bit of a holy thing because it's actually alive. The starter, the the enzymes in the sourdough, it's actually alive and it gives life to us. It takes simple ingredients, flour, water, salt, and makes a whole that is much more than the sum of its parts and historically literally gives life. Really amazing. Uh, he said that so well. And when he said that, I, re- I remembered this, was, this is how and why the early church was patient is because they believed that through simplicity, sticking with the basics, not over-organizing outreach programs or strategies for church growth or all those things matter. But these were not the tactics for growing Christianity. It was simple ingredients coming together and fermenting over time. You can't shortcut this. It bubbles up from the bottom. And this is what we have, simple ingredients. We have scripture. We have prayer. We have worship. We have communion. We have each other. And we're not very special. I'm sorry, you're not. And the result, life, life right here. And then as we ferment and bubble out, life out there but brothers and sisters we need patience and not to live our christian life in anger and impatience finally value who you become more than what you get done value who you become more than what you get done patience of worship will make you into the image of christ but valuing what I get done will only give a list of things to put on your tombstone, just to be frank. So, brothers and sisters, let's not give place to the devil, but grow in the patience of Christ. Amen. Lord, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. 
Amen.